1: We are ready to offer a highly ambitious trade deal including zero tariffs and zero quotas. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policies, subsidies, social protection, the environment or anything similar.
0: I think there
2: is a significant risk of what some people are calling no deal 2.0. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon.
3: I'm Roger Hearing and uh, we have breaking
2: news on Bloomberg Westminster. We do. We're seeing from several sources now that the Chancellor, Sajid Javid, has resigned. This, of course, amid the reshuffle that's been playing out this morning. And it turns out that the most exciting part of it has not come from number 10 at all.
3: It was something that certainly nobody, I think, uh, in the political establishment had foreseen, uh, certainly earlier in the week. In fact, we had Joey Jones, a Cicero, who was on this very programme, mm-hmm. telling us he thought there was bad blood, but that, for the moment, Sajid Javid was there. And In theory, at least, this is the man who's been drafting his budget for a while, uh, and uh, maybe, the Daily Mail, I think, suggesting that it was Dominic Cummings who was, in fact, um, drafting it. Um, we'll go and talk about uh, Sajid Javid just a second. Just to bring you up to speed, there are five other key members of the cabinet who've already been uh, taken out as well, in the purely political sense, I hasten to add.
2: Yep, let's listen to you through them then. So we've got Andrea Leadsom, Theresa Villiers, Esther McVeigh and Julian Smith. Those are the uh, four big names. And then of course, Geoffrey Cox as well, going as Attorney General. Many of those widely reported. Not massive surprises there. It's Javid that really is the juggernaut of this okay. morning. But let's bring in David Merritt on this. It's Bloomberg's senior executive editor who is going to give us a little bit of flesh to this bone. Uh, we've been talking about Dominic Cummings before the show started. I was going to ask you about his influence and whether it was waning because of this being such a small reshuffle compared to what was touted but it sounds like he's getting his way now.
1: Well maybe that's the takeaway from so this. I say this story is just breaking at the moment um, and we don't have the final you know, the, the, the the official confirmation that Jabbitt has gone but if so you know, it's a really stunning development and we know there's been tensions between Cummings and uh, and the Chancellor, um, a big blow-up last year when he fired, summarily fired one of his advisors who was frog-marched um, out of Downing Street and the Chancellor at that point was uh, uh, reportedly furious. Well, it seems the reports now are saying that, um, that Mr Jabber was told to replace his team again, that Number 10 wanted to exert all of this control. And as you just said, you know, he's been drafting the budget, this big post-Brexit budget, going to set the chart the cause for Britain. Uh, How much of it has he really been able to do himself? That's what we'll be asking ourselves. Um, And he just felt that he couldn't continue um, with uh, the government as it stands. So it really does uh, blow the lid off this idea that Mr Johnson's team were happy, that the top four offices of state were secure. Um, and a real bombshell to go off this morning.
3: Let me bring you a few other lines that are coming uh, from from the BBC on this. Uh, One is that uh, Javid was offered that he could stay on as Chancellor on condition he'd fired all his advisers, and he refused. That was the point. Uh, The next thing also being put out there is that Rishi Sunak is going to be the next one. Do you see Rishi as the natural
1: successor? Yeah, well, that's been rumoured for some time. He's obviously the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, so that's a kind of natural progression. He would have been working, of course, On this budget Um, so that I suppose is the least disruptive uh, move to make Um, but you know Mr Javid is a huge figure within the Tory party so having him um, out of the cabinet out of one of the big jobs you know is gonna be a big change the direction of Mr. Johnson's government. What is he going to do and say next? You know, I think uh, Mr. Cummings likes to keep a very close grip. You know, we've we've uh, we've all been reading in the last couple of weeks, haven't we, about the clashes with the press? We had the the press walking out of Number Ten recently uh, in solidarity at some of the more Trumpian tactics. Um, is Mr Javid going to be a friend or foe from the back benches? That's an interesting question.
2: Well, the issue about this conflict is it seems that uh, he's gone to war with everybody, Dominic Cummings. There's nobody who is sort of out of his sights. And the fact that he can now dislodge a chancellor raises the question of who comes next. Because we already knew about these divides within number 10. You've got the City Hall crowd and then you've got the Vote Leave crowd. Uh, but now it seems that these divides run even deeper than that. And if he takes a disliking to somebody, they can end up getting pushed out so easily.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we obviously we'll, we'll have to wait for the real story of what went on and we'll be Mm. working hard I'm sure our our reporters uh, at Westminster to to find out exactly the reason here but yes I think I think you're right. You know, um, this uh, narrative around factions and silos within government that we had it in the Blair and Brown years, didn't we? And that was incredibly damaging. Uh, Mr. Johnson's government is only a few months old. And, you know, it's if if he's one of the big jobs cannot when the people in one of the big jobs doesn't feel that they can continue. It's not a great sign for for the for the months ahead.
3: Let me just bring Tom Newton Dunn, who's the political editor of The Sun, therefore, I think pretty tuned in to the uh, Conservative government. He says Boris johnson's honeymoon is over so i mean that if, if well, he's it didn't saying, last long did it <laughs> well exactly
1: <laughs> you know someone with a huge majority member of course you know when we talk about these sort of um uh, factionalism at the top of government we're more used to that with you know um uh, prime ministers who don't have a huge amount of authority mr johnson's just been returned to power with the biggest majority since margaret thatcher in her heyday and then within a few weeks he's lost his chancellor I think, you know, people are going to be reading into that, that maybe this um, all-powerful Johnson administration isn't going to be so all-powerful after all.
3: And what was going through Sajid Javid's mind to to take that position? That I mean, that's almost as interesting in a way. Does he think that Boris Johnson is in some way perhaps weak and that Sajid Javid, who's clearly ambitious, wants to return to the backbenches in order to perhaps, well, who knows?
1: Well, we know he ran for the leadership. He ran for this job himself. Is he already sniffing? an opportunity uh, so soon after the election. That, of course, would be extraordinary. We know there's been a lot of press coverage about um, Mr. Jabin not feeling like he has the authority or feeling like he's been undermined. There's this nickname, Chino, chancellor in name only. That has got to have hurt. It's clearly got to him. He doesn't feel like he can continue. But again, as I said earlier, What's his next move? Is he going to just sit quietly on the back benches and support the government? Or is he going to be positioning himself, um, if indeed Mr Johnson's honeymoon is remarkably already over, to somehow see himself in that job himself down the line?
2: Uh, And then the reshuffle, the plan was here to put in people who could deliver. And that's another very Cummings-esque idea, isn't it? Because it's about getting things done rather than looking great on the telly. Um, So they're really shying away from media performers and going for people who they see as fundamentally competent.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're seeing, um, you know, the other people who have uh, maybe tripped up over time, you know, have been sidelined a bit, Esther McVeigh uh, being one, Teresa Villiers not um, not making the cut, Um, Andrea Leadsom also, Um, all of these, but these have been well telegraphed to see in advance. And I think, um, you know, uh, Mr. uh, Johnson made a big thing about putting Sajid Javid uh, with his backstory, you know, with, um, as the son of immigrants into that job as a different sort of face for the Conservative Party. You know, we'd never had someone with that sort of background holding the state, uh, being the Chancellor of the Exchequer before. There was great fanfare around that. And, you know, it, the whole thing has crumbled, hasn't it, in, in only a few months.
3: Yeah, but let me pick up on a couple of things. One line, interesting now also coming from the BBC, is a lot of obviously briefing going on in the background. It's supposed to be a new joint team of advisors for number 10 and 11. In other words, number 10, mm. trying to take control in a way of both uh, both the houses, I suppose you could say. But in terms of the financial community, Sajid Javid was someone that people had begun, you know, in the city where we are now, begun to feel comfortable with. That's, that's fair, isn't
1: it? Yeah, I mean, he was one of them, right? You know, he had a background um, in financial services. He was a former banker. So I think people obviously felt like he understood. And, you know, as we go into this new uh, relationship with the European Union, uh, particularly, I mean, he was a bit of a recent convert to the cause of, um, of, of 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 Brexit. He he voted to remain, but then became quite a passionate advocate for Brexit, um, as many of them did, of course. You know, as Mr. Johnson took control of the party. Um, but really, looking forward, but also, you know, would always have been on the side of, you know, how can financial services thrive in a post. Brexit world. So we'll have to learn um, a bit more about Rishi Sunak, um, whether he's going to be the same. Um, But, you know, he is the continuity candidate in a way. He would have been working under Mr. Javid, working on this budget. So I don't think we're going to see a huge change of direction um, immediately. Uh, What will be different, of course, that maybe he's a bit more compliant with some of these, um, uh, the, the bossing around perhaps from number 10. And as you said, this idea of having a joint team. Well, um, you know that, as you say, means really number ten is in control.
2: And what about the relationship with Brussels? Does that change in any way? You mentioned financial services, and that's
1: clearly one of the big spats that we're due to have. Well, it absolutely is. And you know, the status of the City of London—it's been—it's it's erupted in the last few days. This question of what sort of um, recognition of, of regulations are going to happen between Brussels and London, what sort of access do the city firms have? To continental Europe, uh, it's going to be a big bargaining chip, isn't it? Over the over the months ahead, um, the government's taking a pretty hard line on this. The Conservative government—they're saying, um, you know, we need the ability to to diverge. The Europeans are warning that that means um, you're going to have to accept some limits. I don't think we're going to see any change of that. You know, that is uh, Mr. Johnson's priority. We're even hearing it from the incoming Bank of uh, England Governor, mm. uh, Mr. Bailey. He's saying it's absolutely imperative that Britain can forge its own rules so that's not going to change um you know we're only at the beginning. I'm afraid of those that part of the negotiations. So we'll have to see how that plays out.
3: And I was just uh, getting some information here on Rishi Sunak, who we who who's rumoured. I mean, we should say is not confirmed to be the new chancellor of the Exchequer. Former uh, investment banker himself. Go there on, we go, another one. Effect. There we are. Yeah. Same, same in there. Um, interestingly, that that he worked uh, for, for a hedge fund firm Children's Investment Fund Management as well. So he's got all that uh, behind him. Uh, and interestingly, of course, he does fulfil perhaps the diversity issue that. But to, to some extent, Boris Johnson wants visible in his cabinet. We've already talked about the uh, the gender problem in the cabinet. Perhaps, you know, keeping someone who looks different, perhaps, from the vast majority of old Etonians he's
1: said to have there. That's a plus, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and actually, you know, think about that city background. I mean, the hedge fund side, perhaps even more in tune, perhaps, with what the, with, with, with what a lot of the city of London or the investment community here uh, would want to see as one of their own sitting, uh, sitting in the driving seat. But we'll have to wait and find out if he's got that job, <laughs> I suppose.
0: OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com slash techsf.
2: Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. The big question who paid for Mustique, Boris Johnson facing serious questions over who funded his New Year's holiday in the Caribbean. The Prime Minister declared his week-long stay with his partner Carrie Simmons as a £15,000 gift from a wealthy businessman. The Register of Interest at the House of Commons, which was updated very recently, listed that person as David Ross, who was a Tory donor and also the founder of Carphone Warehouse. But last night, Ross insisted he wasn't the owner of the villa, and hadn't paid for Mr. Johnson's stay. We then had a spokesman for David Ross who said that he facilitated accommodation. So it seems like he's helped to find the villa, and therefore they're arguing that the House of Commons declaration is correct. But we still don't know who stumped up the cash. Oh, I love a mystery. Now, do you remember all
3: the bongs issue? Oh, yes, uh, uh, fondly. How are we Big leave, leave the EU with the bongs of Big Ben, and then we tried to raise the money and it didn't happen and all the rest. Of it. Anyway, well the Big Ben costs are still in play because the cost of repairing the Elizabeth Tower, wherein Big Ben, the Bell is, has risen by 18.6 million pounds. The discovery of bomb damage and asbestos has taken the total cost to almost eighty million. The examination revealed decay, damage, hundreds of intricate carvings being damaged. Asbestos in the Belfry. Sounds unpleasant. Extensive use of toxic lead paint, broken glass in the clock dials and the need for a specialist clock expert.
2: I am very sympathetic to this. As somebody who's doing a flat renovation, I've come across asbestos, I've come across yes. lead paint and I've come across soaring costs. How are your intricate you. carvings? Oh, I, I wish I could say I had some intricate carvings. Yes, look after your
3: belfry. That's
2: the main <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> right, and here we go. The Times reporting that the Prime Minister is preparing to soften plans for sanctions on social media companies. We talked about this a little bit yesterday. Uh, that's amid concerns about a backlash from tech giants, of course, a very powerful. Lobby. So yesterday, ministers shelved the decision on whether social media companies should face fines, criminal prosecution, or be blocked from operating in the UK for failing to protect users. Instead, they published an interim response to a consultation and said that a final decision wouldn't be taken until later in the year. So kicking the can down the road springs to mind here.
3: All right. Well, anyway, let's go back briefly to our story. Let me update you with what we know so far about the reshuffle, which has been far more dramatic than anyone expected because... It's believed the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Sajid Javid, has resigned. Uh, it's being reported on several sides that possibly Rishi Sunak will be succeeding. We don't have that confirmed. But also, Andrea Leadsom, Teresa Villiers, Esther McVeigh, all sacked, along with Julian Smith and Geoffrey Cox, Andrea Leadsom, Theresa Villiers and Esther McVeigh, both holding pretty key positions in various departments. So what does this now say about the nature of Boris Johnson's government? Well, I'm pleased to say joining us is Roberta Guerina, who's Director of Gender Research Centre at the University of Bristol. Roberta Garina, thank you very much for joining us. Very good afternoon to you.
4: Good afternoon. My pleasure.
3: Now, first of all, I mean, obviously not a gender issue, but I guess you're probably as stunned as the rest of us to hear that Sajid Javid had gone. Uh,
4: yes. I, I was just reading uh, the news and if uh, the reports that are uh, breaking through at the moment uh, are correct, uh, then it's quite, um, it's quite striking uh, the rationale that he's giving for leaving the cabinet. So that is something that we really need to reflect on in relation to what the cabinet is going to look like going forward.
2: Uh, And it's early days yet in the formation of the new cabinet. We've had the sackings, not the appointments. But the general tenor is that we're going to see women put into junior jobs in the new government. What do you make of that as a strategy?
4: Well, I think uh, it speaks to his relationship, so Johnson's relationship with uh, the party more broadly. So what we have seen is a very masculine leadership style that he has brought into number 10, um, we can have a discussion about how um, he pushed out uh, Theresa May as well, the kind of glass cliff that she had faced, but what we 're seeing is that he 's tapping into more junior people he 's bring, bringing them in to the fold as junior ministers, but what we know in terms of institutional structures is that they 're going to be much less likely to affect change so this is, um, this was expected in many ways because many of the women that you've mentioned, so Letson, Villiers, um, uh, McVeigh in particular, came to prominence in the cabinet because of their Brexit credentials. So what we're seeing is a shift in who is actually bringing close to him.
3: But you could argue, you could argue, it that what he's doing, and, and, and Number 10 has briefed on this, is bringing through people, perhaps some from the most recent entry of MPs, yeah. women MPs, into positions where they can more easily take up the top jobs, because it, it's a progress usually from more junior to more senior. And if anything, he's moving in a, in a positive way as far as uh, getting a more diverse cabinet.
4: Um, That remains to be seen. What we have seen in the last general election is a number of women actually stepping away from politics. So it would be good to see messages or signals being made that the government is taking these kind of issues seriously into account. At the moment, the previous cabinet only had about 30% uh, female representation, which is not very high and actually lower than that in the really top jobs. So what we want to see is this kind of progression happening at a fairly significant speed. But what we're getting in terms of the messages that are coming from Westminster and certainly from number 10 is that what Johnson wants is a more streamlined cabinet. That means there are going to be fewer jobs, top jobs as well. You're absolutely right in terms of the pipeline. You have to create a pipeline. However, what we've seen in a number of jobs, both in business, Mm -hmm. uh, in the academy and politics, is that the pipeline can be very leaky. and Therefore, women tend to drop off uh, right. the um the positions that they're in and we're not seeing this kind of progression happening as quickly as perhaps we would like.
2: Roberta, I've just got to jump in. We've had confirmation now that Rishi Sunak is going to be appointed as the chancellor of the Exchequer. Um clearly not a woman uh, but a BAME candidate. Does yeah. that say anything to you is this a positive move?
4: So the the cabinet there was obviously a in the previous cabinet some effort to actually bring in uh BAME uh politicians Um, It's replacing one BME candidate, well, one BME chancellor with another. What I would really want to see is the kind of politics that they're going to affect. We should not assume that women or people of colour, BME candidates, actually will represent the interests of the groups that they are representing themselves. Um, What we would want to see is a more substantive representation of key issues.
3: I suppose part of all this, though, is is a sense, perhaps, amongst people observing it, people shouldn't be appointed on the basis of their skin colour, of their gender, of anything else about them apart from their talent for the role. Isn't that a reasonable assumption?
4: That assumes that uh, talent and merit are gender-free, right? Um, that there, there aren't obstacles that prevent people of colour, BME candidates, women, to actually achieve those kind of positions so there is a vast body of work and research that has gone into debunking those kind of myths and mythologies about uh, merit being completely value-free obviously you want competent candidates um but at the same time the way that you define competence is 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 not uh, an objective criteria often there are very subjective criteria that come to bear that are biased in favour of one group over another. And there we can really talk about unconscious bias in the appointment process.
2: And what about Brexit? You've argued before that it will hit women the hardest. Why is that?
4: Well, it's uh, what we need to see is what's going to happen now and where issues such as social policy, uh, equal rights, uh, gender equality uh, will will map onto the future, a relationship with the EU, but also what are going to be the priorities for, for this government. We know that at times of crisis, issues relating to social justice and equality tend to be relegated to the bottom of the policy agenda. It is something that often uh, politicians see that they can do in times of prosperity, not times of So are you concerned crisis, that the austerity? government is going
2: to water down the rights that it previously had to uphold as an EU member?
4: What uh, we have found is that, well, obviously we can't, um, we can't predict exactly what the government is going to do, because obviously they could actually strengthen the rights, but that is a political decision. What we have looked at is the impact that European legislation has had providing a safety net. And what we found is that in the UK in particular, more so than other member states of the European Union, it's had a positive impact in creating a body of law, and safeguarded those rights. Now, this government is putting business interests very much at the heart of its policy agenda. What we know when that happens, and particularly if it goes alongside with deregulations, women's rights will be. ...affected because equality is likely to be pushed to the side of other priorities.
3: Roberta, returning to, to politics and the central uh, areas of politics, the government, of course, the cabinet itself, do you think there is a case for quotas, even at that sort of sort of level? We've already talked about quotas for mm-hmm. candidates uh, in selections for uh, constituencies, but should there be quotas as high up as ministerial appointments? Is that is that a reasonable thing to do?
4: Um, if, uh, well, this is entirely my opinion. I, I, I don't actually do research on quotas, but I think it's about who do we want there to be represented. And in a way, having the symbolic representation of different groups of people matters, particularly because of the messages that are sent out. Beyond that, we also need to acknowledge the fact that if you have fewer than 30% representations from a different group of Um, of of people embodying protected characteristics such as BMA or gender, what we are likely to have is higher levels of groupthink happening within decision making. We know that the higher the level of diversity, the more likely we are to have different kind of decisions taking place because we're less likely to engage in groupthink. Now, do I think that women will always be good for women in terms of how they're going to represent themselves in a political setting like a cabinet? No, absolutely not, and we have plenty of examples Mm. of that. However, the more diverse the views that we have at the decision-making table, the more likely we are to actually have different options tabled and discussed.
3: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.